You're listening to the Games Industry Dobbers podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by Managing Editor Brendan Sinclair. How are you, sir? I'm tired. It's a different tired from normal, though. It's it's more of an exasperated, are we still doing this kind of tired, than a not-enough-sleep tired. Okay. By this, do you mean the podcast or just the industry in general? The industry in general, really. It's, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about some stuff later. It's tired. We shall, we shall. So long as it's not the podcast, because we kind of need some enthusiasm for that. That's No one's ever turned to me for enthusiasm for a podcast. It's it's not my brand. No, that's true. Instead, I turn to news editor Danielle Partis. How are you? Hello, I am all right. I'm a different kind of tired. Maybe they're not enough sleep tired. I've had a very large coffee and I'm ready to talk about some video games. Excellent. Good. Good. This is what we like. That's that's the right level of tired, that you're not going to let the tired get in the way of talking about video games. Also joining us then is staff writer Jeffrey Rousseau. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm doing well. I am uh, well rested and ready to talk about the industry. Well rested and without coffee? Um. Oh, no, it's always nearby. Okay. <laughs> I clearly am the only person who is not caffeine dependent on this podcast. Um, let's see if I need caffeine by the end of this episode. We've got three topics to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to start off with Martin Luther King and the Fortnite event that was announced and released last week. Uh, so called March Through Time, uh, developed in collaboration with Time Studios, as in uh, related to the Time magazine. This is a, a non-competitive mode where you essentially walk around a recreation of uh, Washington and various locations important to Martin Luther King and you can watch a, a projection of his famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, the official blurb was celebrate the life and work of Nobel Peace Prize recipient Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a new interactive experience presented by Time Studios developed by members of the community in Fortnite Creative. March through time immerses players in the entirety of Dr. King's monumental I Have a Dream speech and the history surrounding it. Now, the basic principle and the premise of what it is, I don't think is a massive issue. We'll get into this in a minute. Uh, the reactions have been divided. Uh, no, not even that divided. The reactions have been quite negative. Uh, and from some very significant corners, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. Their Twitter account posted just hours after the mode went live the King Center does not license Dr. King's intellectual property and therefore was not involved in any decisions in concerning the endeavor with Time Inc. and PlayStation on Fortnite. These licensing decisions are made by Intellectual Property Management, uh, IPM. Bernice King, the center CEO and obviously Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, then quote tweeted that message, adding decisions around licensing my father's intellectual property are outside of my personal purview. So both of them are basically saying we had nothing to do with this. Um, there are many criticisms around this and we will get into those. One of them is that uh, you were able at first to do emotes. So you had people running around what is meant to be a historical monument or a, an homage to a very important historical figure. And they were doing the various dances and silly gestures that, that Fortnite characters can do. That has since been removed, but that has not addressed all of the issues. Um, team, what do we think of this? Well, I think it's kind of awful. <laughs> like, I, I can see <laughs> I can see where they're coming from, and I can see where a lot of people would look at uh, what Epic has done and say, like, this is admirable and good, and actually we should do more of this, because uh, Martin Luther King and his message and that that speech in particular are things that you know we should be telling kids about the kids that play Fortnite should know about this um and considering uh the push for laws against critical race theory in american schools right now maybe they'll learn about it in Fortnite when they won't learn about it in school or when they have a holiday uh, named after Martin Luther King. And and so I see that side of it. And in that sense, it's like, okay, well, if you want to do this, then sure, maybe there's a, maybe there's a way to do this. Uh, but my, you know, personal assessment is that this is, this is not, not the best way to do it, primarily because the, the venue is inherently not respectful. I, I, I think. And it's it's that way because of, you know, hey, let's have everyone dressed up as, 
you know, the panoply of licensed characters that are uh, available to this, you know, people, think, oh, it's, it's Peely or even the inherent, fo- you know, to Fortnite characters can be kind of like inappropriate for this. And then, and then to, to let, to let them just go wild with the emotes that no one in a, in a position to change things before this went live said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't let people floss in front of the the video of the speech you know maybe maybe we shouldn't let them dress up as rick from rick and morty here like that 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 kind of that doesn't take some kind of really insightful understanding of the way people react in online communities especially the way people react in online communities when you tell them like this is something that you should be serious about. This is something with weight and gravity and, and is, you know, important because there will always be people that look at that and then, and then just kind of say, Oh, well, you know, it's fun to be subversive and it's fun to not be appropriate. And Ooh, look at me. And, and that's, that's just such an obvious thing to understand for anyone who has been online in any capacity for any length of time that Epic not preemptively putting these guardrails around the experience to at least try to make it appropriate is is really disheartening to me. It, it, it's like you're you wanted to like get brownie points for pain lip service, um, but you didn't you didn't really want to do the the work or, or put in the thought to make it appropriate for your product, for your audience. Like the Chris Franklin, who does the errant signal YouTube series, I, I had a, had a great simile for it uh, at on Twitter. And he just said that this is like, you know, trying to have a somber wake at a Chuck E. Cheese. And, and it's, <laughs> it's just kind of like, this is the obvious issues there were some less obvious issues too like as franklin pointed out when he quit out of the the experience uh the loading screen gave him advice about you know hey aim for the head because headshots do more damage which is completely inappropriate uh coming out of an experience for someone that was assassinated like that maybe that kind of thing you sort of don't think about that case when you're doing this and then you may make a patch or whatever afterwards but like the 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 emotes is just it's it's so obvious any anyone could have pointed out to them that that this was going to be a problem and that they didn't address it until after it was out and already a problem is is just kind of i found that so disheartening that it's like whatever whatever good that could have come out of this the, that approach of reaching out to you know kids with with uh, MLK is is like um, I just I, I kind of lost faith in Epic's ability to pull off the rest of it the good part of it when they couldn't even see the bad part of it coming particularly on the the dance emotes as well like I saw a lot of criticism over the weekend of um because obviously Fortnite got in trouble years ago for the amount of dances that you know the dance emotes that were essentially lifted or copied from other people like you know, the, the, you know there's that whole debate of as to whether a dance routine can be copyrighted and you had people complaining well hang on that's my dance moves and they've just duplicated it entirely in Fortnite and someone pointed out a lot of the dances that were stolen were from black creators which you know, to be used in this, it just, it all compounds, like, yeah, everything compounds it, it, itself in this, like, it's just, a, it's a really complex issue. Um, I kind of agree that, like, the, the, the premise of doing this, I, I think, is okay, and I'd like to see more games, particularly the ones that are big and that are, that have that larger, younger audience, doing something educational. As Brendan was saying, like, you know, Martin Luther King isn't perhaps taught in schools as well as it should be. I mean, heck, I, okay, I'm in the UK, but I, we didn't learn Martin Luther King in school at all. So, as much as I saw people complaining over the weekend, like, I really hate that we're going to have a generation of people who know Martin Luther King as that guy from Fortnite at least they will know that guy. At least they will know who he is and what he did. But as Brendan said, like, this is not the way to do it. So I wonder if the, the, the conversation is, as much as we do need to go into why this is done wrong, how it should be done better. Because I think there is room for this. And as a global phenomenon, like how many of the, the people going into that you know, experience and, and disrupting it you know, don't know or really care about 
Martin Luther King. I mean, I, I honestly don't know outside of North America um, how how school kids might might be aware of or understand MLK and his legacy. But this treatment, the general treatment of this does seem consistent with a company run by Tim Sweeney, who, you know, would casually liken his fight against Apple to the civil rights movement. Um, it's... Yeah. <laughs> I heard that groan, Jeffrey. Do you, do you want to jump in here? I... Yes, but um, if, if Daniel has anything to add, please, by all means, go ahead, because... I'm still <laughs> stewing. I get the I, I get the feeling we're we're building up to Jeffrey. So Daniel, go for it, and uh, and then we'll let Jeffrey have the floor. Uh, just listening to that, uh, and we, we were talking about Epic's responsibility in this. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brendan, but this was put together by members of the Fortnite community as part of a community builder thing, and, and not built by Epic themselves, right? I believe so. Yeah. So, so like there, there were, it came from the content creator community. And it, so that's not the, my, my criticisms aren't directed towards those people necessarily, the, the individual creators, but you know, Epic, Epic saw this and you know, they, they put a big old spotlight on it. Yeah. Right. And, and to do that without having worked with those creators to, to put proper, proper guidelines and barriers around the experience. I put the uh, responsibility for for making that experience appropriate on Epic more so than I do on some community members who decided like, hey, this would, this would be a cool thing. Let's try this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just to add, I think that, that games in general, games like Fortnite, have such huge potential to be platforms where you can you know, tell stories and share history in a more accessible way that, that young people will connect with. But this, in my opinion, was not it. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I can't really add anything that you haven't already said. So I will let, uh, I will let Jeffrey speak. So my immediate reaction to this, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you already know what it is. And I'm, I'm not going to hide it on a podcast. It's like I, my immediate response was why given um, what Brendan mentioned in the past with, you know, the platform and how they've handled something like this, because I like to remind everyone, they literally had a panel where um, folks were speaking about race in America, and then you had people throw literal virtual tomatoes at them. So one would assume after that, okay, next time we do something like this, maybe we should just turn off all emails. But that wasn't really the case because we saw that... Um, I don't know, and my apologies, I don't know if it was a day or two afterwards. I think it was the day where they just turned off all emotes um, for the event. Um, the other thing with this conversation, well, there, there's a few things, in it, and I'll try not to <laughs> spend too much time on it. The criticism that you are often seeing amongst the Black community is that Martin Luther King's imagery in words is often sanitized to a way where it, it's it's used where it's comfortable where where it, it, it oh it's almost like a empty platitude when you know the work he's done and and others has been really monumental for the world but the thing is is that he is constantly brought up or used as a figure and, and almost you know as a way to where not a lot of work is really required where you can just have him there and, you know, people could be like, you know, hey, look, we're trying. But over the years, that really hasn't held water. And that was one of the other criticisms I had with this as well, because although you are able to hear the speech and yes, this was um, community driven, um, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not sure. And, you know, again, apologies if I'm wrong. I don't think they really get into a lot of details about why that speech was there. I mean, it's fine. You know, yes, I think it's a great learning tool. And mo most certainly, you know, video games are a great tool for, you know, children to learn. And I do agree that this did have, you know, positive merits. I don't want to totally be down on it. I, I certainly think that were more care put into this, I, I, I think it would have been fine. There was a Twitter thread where the xenomorph from like Alien was sitting outside the virtual museum and 
that to me was just like, this is so surreal. This is like a joke, which is why I thought, you know, why wasn't more care put into this? Um, and I certainly don't want to put the blame on the fan community, but that's neither here nor there. It just goes back to the same conversation is that when video game companies have the ability to, you know, do these things, you know, more thought should be put into it. You know, emo should be turned off. Costumes should have been turned off. And I, I don't know, you know, that's why my impressions of this were, you know, I was wondering, I don't think this is it. <laughs> and, and the other part of the conversation as well is that when you do things like this, sh- should we be critical of it? Um, I'm of the opinion, yes, but not because I think that doing something like this is enough. It, it's not that. It's the level of care that goes into it and what you're really trying to get across. That That's how I really judge these things. So... On one hand, you can certainly say it's like, I, I don't think this is enough because then the question of, you know, who was in charge, who really led led this project. Um, obviously, we can see the estate was a part of it to some degree before, you know, the brouhaha. But, uh, you know, and that was a conversation I was coming up against, you know, like with my peers, you know, uh, some of us were in agreement. Some of us thought this is not cool because... Why is the game, and this is the other thing I'm going to lead into, this is a game that has constantly been the subject of, like James said, they've taken dances that have been a part of Black culture that we just know that, you know, music comes on, it's like we immediately know, and it's just a part of this game that has amassed all this money from media and, and, you know, things are just cool on the internet, you know, and then you have this event that's, supposed to help people revere this individual um, who was one part of a very big movement, you know, to help the world be a little better. It's very disorienting. A great piece, I think, that really does a good job of speaking about this, uh, of um, Funky Joseph with a fan bite. Uh, They wrote, Fortnite isn't the platform for a Martin Luther King event. Like, I encourage everyone to read that because there's a particular sentence in there that I think, you know, just really got to a point. But I'm, I'm not really getting into it. I, I, I think they do a good job of explaining my thoughts. But, you know, again, you know, and the other thing I came with, too, is that I understand the industry's trying to do better. You know, again, I think about last year and what was said. Yeah, think, things like this are good when, when you put a lot of thought into it and, and you make sure it doesn't come off as a joke. But I, you know, one would like to assume that a large platform like this would have had more thought into it. I, I I don't know what those conversations look like. I would love to know what the conversations were like with the creators of this and how, you know, people felt like this would have came across. Um, I'm still very much down on this. Like, I don't like it <laughs> at all. But I do also admit that we're... I do plan to be a parent one day. And yes, I can see how video games certainly um, would be a great way to teach kids about history. And another thing that I think gets lost in this conversations too, is we really don't know what kids who, who play this game think. Like, I would love for us to just know what they think. Like, what what, what do kids, you know, the well-behaved ones, <laughs> what do they think about this? You know, what what kind of conversations do they have amongst their friends and their parents? I, I would definitely love to know. Um, I think that's something that's also missing from this conversation because we're, we're all adults. <laughs> uh, we have all our opinions, but like the intended audience that plays Fortnite, uh, I would be very much interested in what they thought about this. And that's all I have to say. I think to an extent, the the notion of using video games to educate people about important moments in history i don't I, again i don't think that's something people will argue about i think this really demonstrates that it needs to be done in, a, in an authentic way and yeah we were talking about like the emotes the costumes the customization to the avatars even the few screenshots i've seen where like the you know the layout of the mode itself looks a little bit kind of almost theme parkish and there is none of that authenticity like you want something that's a bit closer to say at the risk of using this as an example the the assassin's creed discovery tools like those remove any kind of violent elements of the game. They remove all the stuff that is inappropriate to younger children. It is literally just you're walking around this open world that has been authentically recreated you know, with as much historical accuracy and, and research as they could manage. And then it delves into what is actually happening in that world. And it just takes away the missions, the gore, the combat, the collectathons, anything that makes it Assassin's Creed, it removes all of that. And it just focuses on the history. And it kind of feels like that's what 
someone should have done when the, when the, if if you want to make something that kind of explores and recreates the moment of of Martin Luther King's iconic speech then yeah build that set setting kind of authentically realistically find a way of introducing context as to what led up to that speech and what followed it and kind of explore the issue not just let's put almost like a drive-through cinema in the middle of a, a, a disneyland style model of it i think that this really shows you need to do, you need to do things authentically if you want to have the respect and treat the subject matter as sensitively as you as you should the Fortnite thing had some side exhibit things of of that sort from what i understand but it's you know we're clearly not talking about that right now we're we're talking about how overshadowed it was by the you know utterly predictable mm. uh behavior of of some of the player base and that, that that's something that just like is a a running theme of of the games industry in in general is just we're we're always racing to do things and not considering the very clear and obvious uh repercussions and knock-on effects and consequences of it until we're forced to by something else because it, it it's always just about like you know let's let's make this thing a success first and then worry about the predictable negative effects later because it's more important to just make the thing would this have been better then as a single player experience? Because, okay, okay to use the Discovery Tour as, again, as an example, that is a single player experience so you don't have other players shattering that immersion and generally kind of disrespecting what's going on around you. You know, Fortnite has a single player mode. It was it started as a single player game. So, um, like, yeah, that that's that's something they can do. I know that the, the appeal of Fortnite, the... The secret to its success is its role as a social space for for people, but surely just one mode where do you know what? Here you go in individually and you have a look, or or with I was gonna say with close friends. Like if you're if you're gonna go in with close friends, like you can still disrespect it, but at least you're not then ruining it for everyone else. Um, I don't know. I just wonder if this sort of thing needs to be then be focused on individual or smaller groups of players rather than hey everyone come hang out in this moment of history possibly um i i I think it it depends because i i think and this guy i think this got lost in translation is that you know hey everyone let's experience this thing much like what may have happened then but you know i don't know because fortnite is also a weird space as well where the whole point is that you're experiencing things with other people i i don't know if if players were to receive it uh, as well if it was smaller groups um who knows? I, I have no idea. <laughs> Slightly different topic for you now. Uh... At the risk of lifting the curtain and kind of showing a little peek behind the scenes, when we recorded last episode, um, just before we started recording, we were talking about a feature that Danielle wrote with uh, Supercells, an interview about Everdale, which is their new peaceful and collaborative community cooperative multiplayer game where you're building villages so as as opposed to clash of clans where you build villages and then go to other people villages and smash them you are building a village your village is a group of uh, a, a part of a group of villages in a valley and valleys compete to see who can who can collaborate the best and who can create the most thriving community against other valleys uh, brendan I seem to recall, suggested that this was in no way going to prevent the uh, multiplayer side of things becoming toxic and led by players who have far more time and money to spend on the game than anyone else. Uh, Danielle, how was your experience with Everdell? Because you did end up playing it, didn't you? I did, yeah. I I got it on launch day and I I played it for a week or so. Um, And it started off um, quite nice when you're doing your own thing you can move at your own pace and there wasn't any immediate sort of barriers or super invasive in-app purchasing at first and then I got to the point where you are um, placed in a valley with um, with nine other players and initially I was led to believe that you could set up this uh, valley with people that you wanted to play with um, so friends and people that you choose but that doesn't seem to be the case as of yet it might get added later 
But for now, you're just placed with nine other random people as soon as you hit the level that you need to be to to participate in this. And what I found was that because I wasn't playing uh, at the, the speed and the level that other people in this valley were playing, I was being very quickly um, and <laughs> ejected from these villages for not contributing enough to the... Uh, the overarching wow level of, of speed that this valley was growing and i think that happened to me three times so i would be in a village i would close the game for a while and go to work live my life i would reopen and then see that i'd been kicked out because i hadn't contributed anything and at this point i'm still learning what the the valley does and what you're supposed to do here because it's not all immediately obvious and i just didn't get a chance to contribute anything because whoever was in charge uh, because the top uh three contributors of the the village have a say in all the big decisions that go on and they can choose to apparently uh, get rid of people that they don't want there. Um, democracy at its finest. And yeah, that just kind of put me off playing a little bit because I, I couldn't do anything without having like being placed in a new valley every time I opened the game. So I guess <laughs> when Brendan said that somehow this is going to be toxic, it's not toxic in a in a violent sense. It's it's just toxic in a I, I'm being overthrown by the uh, <laughs> by the leader's sense. It's um yeah. It's Brendan, how smug are you feeling right now? Oh, incredibly. <laughs> like, even more so than usual. This is... We are we are hitting new levels of smugness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it, it's... it's. I think it's kind of inherent to the free-to-play business model and the current live services engagement-driven game design that you can't really do cozy games with that because you're always pressuring people to keep coming back and to like this this one they put you in the village so i think a lot of that was kind of like these are your people and you're collaborating with them but you're also you can't let them down you have to keep coming back and keep doing the thing and if we keep you around long enough you'll start spending money to help out your village uh and i don't think it's really all that different from the you know these these sorts of of mechanics have been in free-to-play games for you know years and years and just because you took the the combat out as the main verb like the the endless treadmill and the social pressures and the you know let's let's boot this person for letting the team down lord of the flies situation there is is really just kind of not compatible i think with like actual coziness i i think the free-to-play business model in a lot of ways is fueled by manufacturing discontent and and keeping people unhappy with what they have and convinced that like if they spend the money then they can be happy with the game for a bit but you never want them to be happy with the game for too long so that they you know keep spending money but you also don't want to tick them off so much that they stop playing entirely and and i think that winds up just being like a design problem where you have to keep people within this narrow band of you know not not enjoying it too too much and not not you know getting too ticked off with it and just bounce them around there and for you know years at a time or however long until they feel like they're invested in the game it's like oh i've spent three years playing this game i can't quit now and and it it you know clearly you can hear me the way I talk about it, I don't like it, and and I I feel it's uh, a lot in a lot of cases it's just not a good thing to spend your time and money on, or you know to spend your career making. Um, but but it's successful; it makes money, and and you know I'm sure those three decision makers on the island are happy enough. At, at being you know on the leaderboards and and able to to boot you to the curb until they find a teammate that's a little more willing to give up more of their life and make the game a priority for them um so yeah can't say i'm surprised i can say i am as as james figured out very very smug <laughs> <laughs> i i find this whole thing so very frustrating because it's it's the competitive element of multiplayer and i mean this both in free to play and and you know console and pc in general that that kind of puts me off like i i enjoy a competitive multiplayer i, I understand why most multiplayer has been historically competitive but 
I am kind of I've reached that stage where I can't commit the time to it. I can't commit the the time resource to it that that is required just to keep up, just to be you know kept at a, a, a general pace. Case in point, you know, while Danielle, I've kept quiet, but like while Danielle was playing it for a week, I was also playing it for a week. I didn't even reach the stage where I could join a valley because that is how little time I have to play. But I don't see why that should lock me out of the ability to play with other people. I listened to what this could have been. I remember the reason I downloaded it was like, the, you know, the, the feature that Danielle wrote, like the, the interview and the, the, the pitch they're selling you. Like, here's this game that's about working together and collaborating. And like, that sounds so nice and such a great alternative to you know I've I've tried mobile games like um, Clash of Clans and Samurai Seas and I tried Dominations because it's kind of very similar to kind of well it's basically Clash of Clans done by ex Age of Empires devs and Age of Empires is one of my favourite strategy games of all time and I was really enjoying it but like you have this again it's the free to play nature of the business like you'll, you'll build up this wonderful kind of big village and you'll store up all your resources you'll log in after you've finished work you know you'll, you'll check it just before work you'll log in after you've finished work and someone or some ones plural have <laughs> marched in stolen all of your stuff demolished half your village and that's it and that's just part of the game and that, that's a frustrating thing to me i find it annoying that we've got to this stage where everything has to be built around this because this is the type of interaction that has proven to be the most successful like you know um okay you're not ruining things uh for each other in in everdale but it's still very much kind of down to like right you know you're competing you the aggressive competition of right who's going to be the best who let's kick people out or holding us back all of this when you think that the whole social game movement the whole of this free-to-play big multiplayer movement started largely with titles like Farmville where you just made a farm and then you did it at your own pace and all right you got a little bit jealous when you visited your friend's farm and their farm was better than theirs because better than yours because you've you've not spent as much time or as much money on it but you that didn't impact your experience at all other than just making you feel like ah oh, I wish I was as good as that but then you like give each other gifts and you kind of visit each other's farms and like that element of stuff. and we've moved so far away from that i think the only game i can think of that's come out in the last 10 years that would be anything vaguely like that and if i'm wrong please do send me recommendations is animal crossing animal crossing is probably the only game where it's like it is about like just yeah just casual pace everyone can kind of work together you're working on your own thing but you can visit each other you can help each other out and there's no kind of aggressiveness there there's no way to punish anyone for not playing to your standard and i find that frustrating Wait, you find it frustrating not being able to punish people? No, I find <laughs> no, I find it ah. frustrating that there isn't a game that isn't built around punishing punishing the likes of me. <laughs> okay, Are, is this where we transition to talking about China? Because I actually <laughs> think that this this discussion is sort of relevant to that. I'm not sure yeah. if it was planned on the podcast docket there, but. So, it wasn't, but it sounds like it sounds like you found an effective segue. So let's go for it. Yeah. So so uh, China this week announced uh, new restrictions on gameplay time for for minors, and it's like if you're under eighteen, then you can play one hour Friday, one hour Saturday, one hour Sunday between eight and nine p.m. each day, and then during the week Monday through Thursday, you cannot play video games, and that seems like a pretty heavy-handed crackdown. Um, I, I, I think most people in the West anyways would, would, uh, or outside of China would see it that way. But the thing is like, this isn't the first time that they've done this. A couple of years ago, they instituted a three hour daily limit on, on video game playing and, and people have been getting around this, uh, regardless. So like, it's, it's, it's not like this is, you know, necessarily going to be effective in, in any way, shape or form, but I do see, um, that this is happening and, and and i think it's probably kind of tied to the way games have been made in the past 20 years and and the the kind of games that are available and popular in china um from from my understanding anyways are a lot like the the free-to-play games that are that are popular elsewhere and there's a lot of it being driven by this constant engagement and uh, a number of them with, you know, loot box, gotcha mechanics, things like that. And for parents to see kids playing these games that are constantly demanding all of their time and that are constantly trying to get them to spend money, like, I, I understand how someone could look at that and, and say, well, that's, that's not 
right, that's not tolerable. We need to we need to stop this. And and the thing that that really gets to me uh, about this is that I don't think the industry as a whole, you know, outside of China here, I think they'll look at this and then just say, oh, well, that happened because China, um, and not think about how the way this industry has changed in the past 10 or 15 years uh, and leaned so hard into free-to-play and leaned so hard into permanent engagement and maximizing that and, and the loot box mechanics on mobile. They, I don't, my, my fear is that they will look at this and, and not realize that they have they kind of set the ball up for China to spike it here. You know, like they, they walked into this and part of this is is our own doing really and i it's it's the you know the argument that that i've been screaming my myself blue in the face about for for years with loot boxes here is that if if we can't self-regulate if if we can't curb our greediest tendencies um without government intervention then we are simply inviting the government to do it for us and when they do they will they will not do it in in a way that is you know appealing to the industry as as a whole so like i i look at i look at china's rules and i just kind of think like okay yeah well we you know we're kind of walking right into that and i don't think china's rules are you know, good. I don't, I don't like the idea. You know, I've, I've, I've got a kid. I don't really think that it's, uh, appropriate to limit them to like, you know, one hour of gaming only on the weekend. Um, but it's, you know, and I certainly don't want the government telling me to limit it like that. But I also, you know, I, I, I can see why people look at games and don't think of them as like all that wholesome or or healthy in influence uh for their for their kids to be spending all their free time with the other thing with uh china uh and this restriction with the with the gaming time for children i think it's also important for folks to you know just look to see what uh you know, reporters who, who normally cover um you know that type of beat and and you know see what they say because i think that um it's it's easy to look at things from our respective perspectives. <laughs> that was funny to say, and you know, just think something different because you know I think it's important to get all those details because as Brendan was mentioning, there there's a number of reasons of what came about that decision. Of course, some people feel that you know the government may be overstepping, or you know what child would normally be up around eight to nine anyway, you know, when most kids go to bed and things of that nature is I personally don't have a lot to add to this except, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, just see what a, a lot of folks who normally cover that beat are saying to, to get, you know, a broader perspective on the topic. Final story we want to discuss this week, um, somewhat of a tangent from the story itself. Uh, Lance Barr retired after 40 years at Nintendo. If you don't know who Lance Barr is, he is the man who was responsible for the redesign of the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the NES, and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or the SNES, in the US and the UK. Uh, so... Specifically, the the very boxy-looking NES that we all know and love here in the West, that was his kind of project. It's partly due to they had to cut costs uh, when creating the Famicom for the Western markets, uh, so they had to drop certain elements of it. Apparently, like he originally supported like a data recorder and a keyboard, and they had a new, I believe it was a new edge connector, which meant that the, the cartridges would have to be lo- loaded horizontally rather than top-loaded like they are in the, uh, in the Famicom, which is the Japanese version, which is why you got that kind of vhs style loading tray that i don't know why i'm doing the motion here when this is a podcast you can't see me doing the motion with my hand um so that's that's that that's how the 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 western design for the nes came along the super nintendo in europe actually matches the super famicom in uh japan but lance bar kind of felt i believe the quote was like he felt that it was too soft and didn't have enough edges so he made a, a boxier version 
uh, for the the US market specifically that kind of sort of kind of followed on from the the NES NES model with his with Barr retired now and the the redesigns of the uh, the story behind the redesigns back out in the in the public I thought it'd be fun to discuss who which ones we prefer do we prefer the top loading red and white uh famicom to the looks like a massive vhs style box nez of the uh, the west do we prefer the the slender super famicom slash european snes or the uh, the the boxier us version that bar created like did did anyone here on these on this panel have any of these devices yes i, I had an nes and a super nes um and uh, I don't. I don't get the Famicom uh, design. <laughs> like that. That one doesn't stick with me. I love. I love the NES. Um, the the VHS cartridge kind of thing. I always thought that was super cool. And the the Super NES. I actually. I I know it was 1990 or 91, and so they felt like, oh, we need more edges. But I I like the uh, the Super mm-hmm. Famicom design. I think it's a bit smoother little more colorful and it's it's mm-hmm. just i don't know i i prefer it to 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 what i grew up with oddly enough yeah it was really boxy the, the super the super nes um i don't know i just thought that was cool um you know uh but yeah no i prefer the the smoother um design of the super famicom for sure See, I only have had ne- had a NES. My my parents were very clever. When I asked for a Nintendo, and I was very young at this point, when I asked for a Nintendo for Christmas, and I didn't realise the difference between a NES and a SNES, they got me a NES. I think it was like the Christmas after the SNES came out. So here I am thinking, I've got this wonderful new Nintendo, and I'm playing all these wonderful games, and actually everyone else I knew was on a SNES. And then my parents couldn't afford a SNES because they'd just bought me the NES. And uh, I, was, I was on the NES until after the N64 came out. So I obviously have a lot of nostalgia for that device because that is the only source of video game love I had uh, right up until I think it was like 98 90, Christmas 98 is when I finally joined the world of 3D so I had a, I had a NES for about 6 to 7 years before that um, and I, I yeah it's I, I look back at it it's like it was ridiculously large the, the western design of the NES like it was just huge but that was dictated by like because they had to build a case that could take in the cartridge at a diagonal and then lower it down again i'm doing the hand motion um lower it down to like kind of that horizontal position that it needed to be in like that just dictated the whole that that mechanic that mechanism designed the dictated the design of the whole device and i look back as like that is just it's almost too big for what it is but yeah, that's that's the device I know and love. I never had a SNES, but I absolutely yeah, I agree. Kind of the, the the Super Famicom, the smoother design. That's definitely the the better design. I'll be honest. Until this story came out, I forgot the UK. The, sorry, the US had a different design SNES, and I don't understand why. I think it was like primarily only for the, the US or like the American side of things. Like why the rest of the world has got this like sleek, smooth, grey console? Why do you need this weird, almost white and purple thing? Had to be edgy. I like the purple accents though, and and I while I prefer the the Super Nintendo that um, that you got in in the UK, James, uh, your pronunciation of SNES will will never sit right with me. <laughs> no, I know. Hey, but SNES sounds wrong. Well, it's the same thing, you know. It sounds wrong to you, I'm sure, but like, yeah. So how should I be pronouncing it then? I don't know. Should we just say Super Nintendo? Well, yeah, Super Nintendo is obviously better. Yeah, okay, Super Nintendo and the, the N- Nintendo and the Super Nintendo—that's probably better because I've I've heard people. This is this is like uh, in our style guide where we decided to start using the percent symbol because the U.S. and U.K. side would have <laughs> too many fights over whether percent would have a space in it between the R and the C. Basically, yes, it definitely needed a space. Um, the weird one is when I hear people say, I "Call it the Super NES." Oh, ugh. like what? No. <laughs> no, call it one that decide one thing. It's weird. Um, okay, well, I think that that debate didn't take as long as I thought. So I'm going to put this out like as, as before we wrap up. I'm going to go around the table. What is your favourite and least favourite console design? And I'm talking the shape of the you know the box of the console, not like the controllers or the graphics or any, any other feature. Like literally the visual look of the console. Favourite and least favourite. Brendan, let's go with you. Okay. Well, 
I, I can't separate it from the actual performance of the console and the games, maybe. Um, or maybe they're tainting my opinion. But I don't think you can get something that's really better than the Dreamcast <laughs> as as far as looks. Um, for ugliest, like, whoa, we got a strong field of contenders. Um, I think the Atari Jaguar is has got to be one of the, the shortlisters. Um, the PlayStation 4 is not an attractive console in in my estimation uh, i the the actual the original famicom might be on that list too it it just does nothing for me fair enough jeffrey oh, oh no no wait, go, 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 wait, go, 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 i'm sorry go, add on. the original ds not nah. that thing was hideous. see i to go from the <laughs> the gbasp which was just like the most awesome elegant wonderful thing to to the the ds was just that that i like the ds i still i only ever had a launch ds and i like it I, the only thing that i was going about like it didn't have like the weird like the gray accents of like the prototype they showed off at e3 it didn't have that but like the general design i like the ds i like mm. the original mm. sounds like i'm wrong well, <laughs> just a matter of taste <laughs> jeffrey go for it <laughs> um for worst is that well i definitely tell you i'm not i'm definitely a big fan of not liking (laughs) the original playstation 3 console design it's just (laughs) yeah Yeah, wow (laughs) um as far as favorite um i'm gonna have to go with uh hmm wow uh the playstation vita the slimmer redesigned one not the original uh yeah, the slimmer yeah, one. Even, even the original was lovely. The Vita was great. I love the Vita. Yeah, we'll go with those. <laughs> Good choices. Nice. Danielle? Um, I think, going back to what Brendan said, I think the the SP is one of my all-time favorites. It was just so neat and, and boxy. And at the time, things that you could flip up and down were just brilliant and still are brilliant I, I still have i still have my sp under my coffee table to just play randomly because i just can't let go of it it's such a perfect little console and just for for pr fun the gamecube there was just no point yes but it was brilliant <laughs> like there was just, let's make the disc smaller but make the console a box and let's put a handle on it why who needs that <laughs> It was a lunchbox. Yes. It was a lunchbox. It we was, literally called it a lunchbox. It was glorious. Absolutely perfect. Yes. Those are my favorites. And uh, yeah, I think the original PS3, I just, I never had one. So maybe that encourages my, my loathing for it. But I just, I remember it like not really knowing if it wanted to be matte black or have a, it had a shiny top and then like matte sides and then the strip of silver and it, it wasn't quite a box, but it wasn't quite rounded either. It was just... It's yeah. a bit horrible. I don't like the PS4. With, with, the, sp- with the Spider-Man logo across the front. Yeah, yeah, that horrible font. Yeah. No, not about it. I've got good associations with it because like, the, the original one is the one that does the hardware backward compatibility for PlayStation 2 games. Yeah, that's but true. You're mentioning this now, and, and now that I think about it, it really does just remind me of all the PSP batteries I had that got super puffy and like popped out of the case <laughs> yeah. and were about to explode yeah. before I got rid of them. <laughs> nice. No, those those were all good um, choices. Well, at the risk of ruining it with my my choices. Um, no, in terms in terms of worst design, like I, yeah, the PS3 is up there for me. The 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 George Foreman grill, as it was referred to by many of my friends, um, is up there. But I think I'm going to put out the um, the original Xbox. Oh, I cool. think largely, largely because, like, I got they were trying to do because it's it's a box that's got a massive X on it. <laughs> but I think, like, at at the time, you compare it with the the quite slender PS2 and the diddy little GameCube, the the little console that could. The Xbox was a monstrosity, mm-hmm. and you combine that with the Duke controller. 
that was like three times bigger than any normal human hands. I just, yeah, the Xbox, the original Xbox, I just always, will always remember as a very, and even even like, I think this is going to sound really silly, but like the Xbox logo, you look at like how how sleek the, the, the Xbox logo has been since the 360 era, like kind of, you know, the circle with the, the kind of curved X, that weird like jagged horror, like, yeah, no, just the, the original Xbox with the original Xbox logo and the Duke controller, no, I think that's probably my least favourite console design. Best, I mean, we've already waxed lyrical about how wonderful the GameCube was, um, so that's definitely up there, but I think I'm going to put out there the Wii, because it was just so simple. It was just a simple little white box, it was the size of three DVD cases, so it wasn't big, it didn't take, you compare like the size of the Wii to the size of the PlayStation 5, you know, it was like, it, it's this diddy little console, it did so many cool, interesting things, I know we're not talking about fu- functionality, but like, thinking about what's inside that box, like I know it wasn't the most advanced hardware, but like, it, it, it was something different, and honestly, I miss, I miss that, that blue glow that you got around the uh, disk drive, that, was, yeah. um, that told you you had a message. Like I, I remember at the time I I did a Nintendo podcast in my spare time, and we worked out a way that listeners could sign up to a mailing list, and then we would email everyone's Wii's um, when a new episode was out, so your console would glow when it was time to download a new episode of our podcast. And that was that's just such a fun little function that I just I don't think we've there's nothing been since like that. I just I loved that glow. So yeah, I'm gonna say the Wii. Did you use the Wii in vertical position or, or? yes? So so you use that like angled stand? Yeah, I use the angled stand. I, I never I, really I have... got the angled stand really. It it didn't do anything for me. It didn't make sense to me. Did did it work for you? Yeah, I think I think it works for me purely purely because like, I I just had it to the side of my telly, and again because it's such yep. a small device, it doesn't like stand out. It doesn't like kind of take up half the. You look at the current generation consoles. As much as I picked on the PS5, even my Xbox, like we've got a 50 inch TV now, but the Xbox Series X is like this gargantuan monolith next to it and there's just like no whereas the Wii you kind of just tucked it it's like oh, you, you barely noticed it and then like yeah I've seen I've seen people use it kind of horizontally like kind of tucked away on a shelf and that that works as well but I don't know I just quite liked it being there out so I can just write slip in the disc you know oh blue glow I'm going to notice the blue glow more if it's standing vertically next to my telly than if it's shoved under a shelf so fair yeah. enough so uh, I'll say I've heard a lot of very good points made in the last few minutes here um, but I think far and away, Danielle's point about things that flip open and closed, that, that <laughs> just, that's the discussion yeah. ender right there. Like, absolutely. It's so true. If you can't aggressively slam your device shut after use, then what is the point of owning it? <laughs> it's great. Sorry. That is a superb note to end on. That is all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all our previous episodes on the podcasting platform of your choice, and you can obviously get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. 